1: Hello friend, welcome back to Foul Play with our third and final episode of Just a Family Business. Kathy and Carl had almost given up. They sat outside the Bowman house, defeated and upset that they couldn't do more. But as Kathy stared at the house, she started noticing something she'd never seen before. A concrete slab at the back of the garden. She launched herself out of the car, and ran towards it, and it proved to be the answer to all of the questions that had plagued her for years. Dennis Bowman was the prime suspect in the disappearance of Andrea Bowman, at least in Kathy and Carl's eyes, but as far as the investigation was concerned, there wasn't any tangible proof that Andrea's father had committed her murder. Only a criminal record and testimony showed an apparent pattern of behavior. This, sadly, was not enough to build a case against him. Meanwhile, other questions were being answered elsewhere.
2: Peggy Johnson was last seen at a homecoming dance in Harvard, Illinois, in 1994. Like Andrea Bowman, people presumed that she had run away. She had a learning disability that made it hard for her to find work. That was until she met Linda LaRoche, a nurse who offered her an opportunity as a live in housekeeper and nanny. To the teenage Johnson, this was an excellent chance to start her life properly. She didn't know that this meeting would be the beginning of the end. Over the next five years, Peggy would be treated like a slave, beaten, starved, and forced to live in horrible, cramped conditions. Peggy's remains would be found in Raymond, Wisconsin, with no clue who they belonged to. The autopsy revealed the cause of death as sepsis, resulting from pneumonia, but it also revealed a shocking list of abuse that included decaying teeth, broken ribs, evidence of sexual assault and a cauliflower ear deformity. This was the Racine County Jane Doe, thought at one point to be Andrea Bowman. It wasn't until Laroche was investigated and questioned that she confessed the remains were Peggy Johnson. Laroche received life in prison, and there was some closure for Peggy's family. This was of slight relief to Kathy and Carl, but their primary investigation was still very much unresolved. But not for too much longer.
1: Kathy's phone rang out of the blue on a Friday morning. On the other end of the line was the girl who had narrowly escaped Bowman as a six-year-old decades earlier. She was calling to tell Kathy News that she had been waiting to hear for years. They got him. They got him, she said. Police surrounded Bowman's house. The entire street was lit by blue and red flashes and overcrowded with police officers. There was no getting in or out of this quiet suburban neighborhood it was the sight kathy and carl had hoped to see and now it was finally happening kathy knew exactly who she needed to call first it was her amateur detective partner at this point carl was back at work following the death of his mother and he was just about to get started for the day the news changed what was going to be an ordinary day into a key milestone for their investigation. They were certain this had something to do with Andrea. But as news came out on Dennis Bowman's arrest, it wasn't. It was about a different crime, but one almost as disturbing. The sheriff's office wanted Dennis for a different murder, one that wasn't even on Kathy and Carl's radar.
2: This crime occurred 800 miles away from Lake Michigan, and the victim was Kathleen Doyle, a military wife who spent long periods of time alone in Norfolk and Virginia. She used her time to write, having aspirations to become a published author. The young couple had only been married nine months before the 25-year-olds were found stripped, gagged, and strangled with an electrical cord before being raped and stabbed. The theory the police were working with was that her home had been broken into and the stranger had committed the crime. A semen sample was taken but didn't lead to an arrest. Instead, the murder was pinned on Henry Lee Lucas a Otis Toole, other notorious serial killers in the area. The former confessed to killing Doyle, and it was seen as the end of the case. But soon enough, it became clear that Henry Lee Lucas's confession was a lie, and it remained a mystery who had ended Doyle's life. Joe O'Brien, Kathleen Doyle's father, wrote an open letter to the Virginia Press in 2003, hoping the real killer would be found in his lifetime. John died in 2016 and had never had his wish granted. That was until a huge breakthrough with DNA. With the help of genealogical research, experts advanced to the point where 30 suspects could be narrowed down from the sample left at the scene. And soon, this would be narrowed down to just one. When Kathy was making her claims about Dennis Bowman years earlier online, the Bowman family reported her for harassment, and when visiting the police station to give a statement, Dennis was offered a glass of water. Geoffrey Floor, the investigator hired by Kathy, kept that glass and took a sample of Bowman's DNA from it, just in case it proved useful in the future. And lo and behold, it did.
1: The task facing Norfolk detectives when looking into the murder of Kathleen Doyle was trying to get a DNA sample from all the men on their suspect list. The men were scattered all over the country, so this would be a mammoth task, especially with other pressing cases that needed urgent attention. The chance of producing a match was slim, yet the odds were a little kinder when detectives from Norfolk met with their Michigan counterparts at a national seminar. The Michigan representatives were curious about the name Dennis Bowman and confirmed he was on their radar and were more than happy to help. And in fact, they had just recently gotten his DNA sample too. The sample found at the scene of Doyle's murder and Bowman's DNA was a match. And it was all the police needed to issue a warrant for his arrest. Bowman was sent to Virginia to stand trial, although by this point he had already confessed to killing Kathleen Doyle. At the time of the murder, Bowman was out of jail on bond for the crime against the 19-year-old he had shot at. He was also doing his annual two-week service for the Naval Reserve. He claimed that during this time he'd gotten drunk and attempted to rob Doyle in her home. When the robbery became botched, he resorted to killing the 25-year-old. This was at least Bowman's version of events. Regardless of how it happened, Bowman had been caught and was going to prison, partially thanks to Kathy. But this was just a positive footnote to the unfinished story concerning her daughter, Alexis Badger, a.k.a. Andrea Bowman.
2: In early February, snow covered the ground in Hamilton and also covered the backyard of the Bowman's household, but that wouldn't last long. The police were coming back, and this time it wasn't for an arrest, but to search the property. They had brought the cavalry, a full forensic team, dogs, everything you'd expect to see in a murder investigation. They were looking for any evidence they could find because now they knew Bowman was capable of murder. The same phone call chain through an amateur sleuth network made sure they were all informed and they all knew the police were homing in on that concrete slab that Kathy had homed in on herself during her last visit to Michigan. Later that day, a press conference revealed what Kathy had known for so long. Remains had been found and the suspicion was that they belonged to her daughter. All they needed was a DNA test to prove the link. Kathy didn't need a second opportunity to provide this. The results came back. They were a match. After decades of missing her daughter, she had finally found her again. This opened the door for the murderer to be questioned again, so the other gaps in the story could be filled. Bowman played his accident card again, as he had done with Doyle. According to him, they had an argument He slapped her, and this caused her to fall down the stairs. She broke her neck from the resulting fall, and the whole story about her running away was to cover the entire thing up. Kathy and Carl didn't believe a word of this, of course, and more details were revealed of Bowman's life of crime. They had every reason to be suspicious.
1: In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, Her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with MyLifeInABook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out MyLifeInABook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's MyLifeInABook.com and use code Shane for 10% off today. Dennis was moved back to Michigan to serve the rest of his jail time and to stand trial for Andrea's murder. This was during the COVID-19 pandemic and the trial was held remotely. This allowed Kathy and Carl to watch the live stream and see some truths emerge. One of the most shocking was how the police knew where to look when it came to finding Andrea. After all, She was killed at their previous house in Holland. Why wasn't she there? Dennis had moved her there. That's why. He confessed this from prison to Brenda, who then told the authorities. It was the first time he'd told the truth to his wife, who genuinely thought she'd run away. When questioned on alleged abuse, she revealed that she thought the 14-year-old was lying. She stood by her husband through everything, not realizing he was the last person to be trusted. It became clear with Andrea's autopsy that Dennis had dismembered his adopted daughter. His reasons for doing so, he claimed, were out of necessity. It was the only way he could complete the cover-up. He had put her remains in plastic bags and then in a cardboard tube before burying them in the garden. Dennis pointed to a machete in his home to confirm the story. Although the details were grim, it was at least better for Kathy to learn rather than not to know and have her daughter's killer free. It was becoming increasingly clear these incidents were likely more frequent than first thought. Among the many he'd hurt and harmed, there was also a 27-year-old woman In October 1979, an intruder broke into a young woman's home and he bound, gagged, and sexually assaulted her. The local newspaper published a police sketch of their suspect that stared out from the front page. Elsewhere, Dennis continued to look the residents of his town in the eye, maintaining normal conversations and leading the American life His young wife and child. How was the neighborhood to know? What was walking among them? He continued to commit similar crimes until he left in 1989. With nothing left to lose in prison and serving two life sentences plus 20 years, Bowman confessed to this crime 40 years later. But what confused the armchair detectives? was the fact that this sketch was so similar to Bowman's, and still no one had made the link. Not only that, but police suspected that the person who committed the crime in 1979 was also responsible for other incidents in the town, but never made a move on it. This definitely wasn't a one-off incident of this type, and the local police were more than aware of this. Deborah Polinsky was another victim, of a suspiciously similar crime to that of Kathleen Doyle. She was stripped, sexually assaulted, and stabbed. She was just 20 years old and another resident of Holland. And only 30 miles northeast of Holland, in Grand Rapids, a 19-year-old named Shelley Speet Mills was stabbed to death too. This happened in 1970 when her mother discovered her body. Both crimes reminded Kathy and Carl of what Bowman had admitted to, and the proximity of where they took place seemed more than coincidence.
2: With time, more and more of his stories cropped up, and the victims who had the bravery to come out stepped up to ensure Dennis stayed where he belonged, in jail, away from society. Whether Dennis Bowman will be seriously investigated for these crimes remains to be seen. What Cathy and Carl discovered in their research was a clear pattern of behaviour which leaves him as the prime suspect for all of these crimes, at least in their eyes. But none of these incidents are as shocking as the one concerning Andrea Bowman. After decades of mystery involving DNA tests, police forces across the country and lengthy investigation work, it became clear what happened to the 14-year-old girl who just wanted a normal childhood like her mother before her. Peggy Johnson, the Racine County Jane Doe, suffered a similar fate but was finally able to be laid to rest as she was reburied next to her mother. This symbolic action included a headstone that read her real name. Cathy is now fighting to ensure the same happens with her daughter. She wants her to be buried as Alexis Badger and for this chapter to finally be closed. This ambition could be seen as more in hope than expectation, but that being said, so many aspects of this story were done in hope. Despite this, with limited resources and a lot of determination, Kathy, with her crime-solving partner Carl, were able to close numerous cold cases and bring people to justice. This story exposes many things, the pure evil of some people and their ability to get away with their crimes for so long, the importance of armchair detective work, which Kathy and Carl preach to this day, and the flaws with the police that allowed these crimes to remain unsolved for so long. Although the details are anything but something to celebrate, the way in which our two amateur detectives went about their work and got results is something to admire. If it weren't for them, this story would remain a mystery. Thank you for listening to our series on Fell Play. And remember to subscribe to us for more true stories like this one, as we explore the most harrowing mysteries revealing the human condition.